Hello and welcome to the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Editorial Director Johnny Ensel and this is Vera, your favourite magazine but in a delightful audio format. And for this December edition we're feeling just a little bit festive as we find out what's at the centre of the world's biggest Christmas maze in Las Vegas, disappear down the back alleys of Dickensian London and see what's for dinner with a Texas cattle rancher, though surprisingly it isn't meat. And there'll even be a bit of this. Katz's Deli, yep. which is famous for When Ali Met Sally. When Ali Met Sally. <laughs> when, Ali met, when Ali Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally, yeah. Okay. I'll say that again. <laughs> we begin, as always, with Red Hot, in which we find out what's trending in the worlds of film, TV, culture, food, drink, and uh, anything else besides. And we're joined for this, as always, by our resident trend hunter, Jessica Poupas. Hello, Jess. Hi, how's it going? Uh, very well. Have you been busy hunting and what treasures have you unearthed? Yeah, I've been I've been hunting around the world, um, globally. Ceaselessly. And ceaselessly. <laughs> she doesn't sleep. <laughs> I've gotten very little sleep. Um, <laughs> in the quest for trends. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start out. What's um, making you excited? Down in Vegas, mm-hmm. um, there's a big Christmas village moving in called Enchant. Enchant the Christmas village. Because it's enchanting. Right, okay. And why uh, why is it enchanting? First of all, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. So it's set in a Resorts World, which is a new resort in Vegas, like a multi-billion dollar resort that was built last year. Right. And is really like the only appropriate setting for uh, this Christmas village. So Because the village itself is so it's, big and it's so big, intense. It's so big and it's home to the world's largest Christmas maze. Mm. If you if you want to get totally lost in Christmas. If you want to get, yeah, completely immersed in Christmas. Yeah. Um, do you know what a Christmas maze is? I'm sort of imagining like rows of Christmas trees and you kind of navigate your way around it. Yeah, it's essentially that. Um, yeah. I think it's this company that the company that does enchant that came up with the concept of a christmas maze okay and it's just kind of grown you know in scale every year yes to this year where it's just like tunnels of christmas lights they say it's decorated with four million christmas lights which Mm. is a lot it's a lot of bling Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to traverse your way through this maze um to find an 100 foot christmas tree in the center oh wow yeah so so you find your way and at the end you're rewarded with boom big tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boom big tree. Boom yeah, big exactly. tree. Yeah. Um and a Santa's village somewhere in there. In the maze. In the maze, in the maze next to, adjacent to the maze. So somewhere there is a Santa. There's somewhere there is a Santa and a Mrs. Claus. Within the village there is a smaller village and within that village there is a Santa. Yeah, it's very meta. <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, all right, so this, this sounds like some sort of quintessential Christmas experience. Do you think, I mean, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but do you think that Christmas is getting bigger? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> like Christmas, I feel like it's had its time for sure. <laughs> it's, had a, <laughs> it's had a good run and it's just going from strength to strength, isn't it? Yeah. What about Hanukkah? What about Kwanzaa? Where are they? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what about all the other fest- festivals of light? <laughs> well, I mean, like... I think that people's desire to be cozy and to feel festive is only increasing year on year. It traverses all religions and, yeah. you know, communities. And that maybe says something about how sort of dire things are during the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> but for this, for this time, we can celebrate. 
yeah, I think it's like a cozy retreat mm-hmm. and it's just festive and who doesn't like to be festive? No, I, I love to be festive. I'm like Mariah Carey in that respect. So please <laughs> um, let's uh, move on. What else have you got for us? Uh, sessions in London. Mm-hmm. What's Sessions? So it's a new food hall with a difference. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of like a f- an incubator for young talent in London. Um, I went there the other week. And it's a really interesting concept because essentially they've got three in-house chefs who craft their own menus. uh, And then they kind of all come out of the same kitchen. So it's quite efficient. Because I've been been to lots of food markets where there's loads of stalls. And the stalls are basically the same. Yeah. But they're good and you kind of go there. But this is... Not that. This is not not that. that. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. So you kind of sit down, you're given an iPad, and then there's three menus, um, one from Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. They do pop-ups around London and they serve Ghanaian food. And then one is Big Hass, who is really big on Instagram. He's a chef of Turkish origin Mm -hmm. who does, you know, food from that region. And then Tiger and Rabbit, and they do kind of like playful fun korean food okay and but these these people do revolve and they change yeah at the moment none of those chefs have any other like brick and mortar you know restaurants or anything so this is kind of like their first step towards that they might move up and they might move yeah they might move on after um and establish their own restaurant oh okay i get it it says food monkey but it's also an incubator yeah Yeah. exactly i mean that's what you said but now yeah that is what i said that's what you said but (laughs) now you pay attention to me That's what I'm saying. Well, I, I try, sometimes I drift off. <laughs> and they also do residencies and dinners, mm-hmm. um, special dinners. Um, and it's kind of vibey in there. You know, they've yeah, got great. music going, yeah. natural wine, of course. Well, eating is the new clubbing. Yeah, so they say. Def, def, <laughs> certainly in London it is, yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on. What's next? Um, NYC Storefronts. Mm-hmm. This is a book by Joel Holland uh, that's out now. Um, Joel Holland is an illustrator and he grew up in New York um, and he was really inspired by the stores he grew up around because there's like a lot of really iconic Mm. shop friends in New York, don't you think? Yeah, so I'm thinking like Katz's Deli. Yeah, that's one that he illustrated in this book. Yeah, Which is famous for When Ali Met Sally? When Ali Met Sally. (laughs) When Ali Met met Sally. When Harry Met Sally. When Harry met Sally, yeah. I'll say that again. <laughs> when Harry met Sally, yeah, never, yes. never forget. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> never forget the infamous, yeah, the infamous O scene. Yeah. I mean, you forgot the name of the movie, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, when, when Sally met Harry. can't be trusted. Yeah. Okay, so um, NY- NYC Storefronts. NYC Storefronts, it's a book. Yeah. He, Joel Holland illustrated it, and it's just basically a bunch of his illustrations of, you know, really iconic storefronts in New York. Okay, and, and what sort of sets this book apart? Why is it particularly interesting? Well, I think as Joel says, everyone has their own favorite New York. Everyone has their own little slice of New York mm. that they love, and that's what makes it an interesting place. And that's kind of what he tried to capture, you know, in the book. Like, there's bits from every community, yeah. um, every borough. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's just a nice little slice of the of New York. Wonderful. I mean, I I love that about going to New York. I, I love to take bites out of the Big Apple, <laughs> and uh, you know, in different parts. <laughs> and don't like to eat like in a particular part of the apple. You know, I like to take little nibbles of different, like a little squirrel, like a little squirrel, all around <laughs> the edge of the surface of the apple. It's a nice image. Yeah. Well, moving on from that. <laughs> uh, what's next? Um, the Conrad in LA. 
Okay, and this is a... It's a hotel. Hotel. But it's a massive project, massive development mm -hmm. um, in downtown LA, designed by Frank Gehry, the one and only, mm -hmm. very famous architect. Yeah. You could say the most significant architect of our age. Oof. You could say. Well, you've said that. <laughs> I, um, I might not say, but you could say, one could say. One could. <laughs> he designed the LACMA, the big art gallery in LA. He designed the Guggenheim mm. in New York. Um, and now he's designed the Conrad also in LA. And yeah, it's just going to be like a really significant landmark in downtown LA now. It's enormous. It's got 25 floors, 305 guest rooms. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, got it's, got, it's got presence. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just going to be like a new iconic addition to the um, LA skyline. It's also got the biggest pool in downtown LA, which mm -hmm. is, uh, yeah, a decent brag the biggest rooftop pool um it's got five restaurants i mean i like that because when i go swimming i hate to be near to other people <laughs> I, don't know. I mean i know we're all floating in the same water but there's something about having people like actually close to me just brings that home yeah you can keep out the riffraff <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. they can have it's, their it's own very bit. high up and it's very big so yeah oh, right, yes good Okay, great. So the Conrad, uh, this is presumably Conrad Hilton, right? Is it yeah. a Hilton Hotel? Yeah, it is. Paris Hilton's dad. Paris Hilton's dad. <laughs> As I like to think of him. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, wonderful. Right. I'll be checking in there. And um, let's finish off then. What have we got finally? Celebs fessing up. Fessing up. Fessing up. What are they fessing up to? <laughs> um, a variety of things. Mm hmm so um, Danny DeVito recently got caught in a lie. He was doing a lie detector test um, mm -hmm. on YouTube. You know, Vanity Fair does this. Okay. Um, and they asked him if it was true that he saved Michael Douglas by sucking out venom from his arm after he got bit by a snake. So, all right. So this is like an established Hollywood story. Yeah, this is something he was apparently going around telling people that he had this heroic encounter with a snake and Michael Douglas. Yeah. But it turns out it was a lie. And, he, and so he had to confess to it. Right. Okay. So he was found out on the lie detector and he sort of was like, yeah, it never happened. Yeah. He kind of like had to sheepishly cop to. Yeah. I mean, he's so forgivable, Danny DeVito. I know. He is a, he is a little sweetie, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. I'd be like, oh, it's, it's fine. Danny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I don't begrudge him of that. <laughs> it's a cool story. So yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Great. So DeVito has been fessing up. Who else? DeVito has been fessing up. Cameron Diaz. Mm -hmm. What's fessing she up On the Drew Barrymore show, she confessed to um, liking to have a little pee in her pool from time to time she pees in her pool i know how disgusting um no i mean everyone everyone does that everyone does that this is what i mean this is exactly what i'm talking about Jess. exactly what i'm, I'm normalizing about. it I'm, no <laughs> I'm gonna just say right now i'm normalizing it <laughs> i mean i know they have chemicals and things but still it's her own pool I sh this is what this is what she said she said it's her own pool she can do what she wants uh yeah that's fair enough yeah fair enough but but what you know when you go around to cameron's house she's like oh you can take a swim if you want but i pee in it <laughs> i mean that would only be fair <laughs> well i i know now <laughs> the next time <laughs> and finally olivia cook she admitted on she's a wreck podcast she admitted that she was so lonely during lockdown that she used Instagram as her own personal dating app and started sliding into the DMs of famous actors and kind of asking them out. Right. And no one replied, which is absolutely brutal. 
I mean, that is a good confession, but it's also like, oh, she does like what a normal person does. <laughs> like Stars, they're just like is. us. I have to say, I've never executed a DM slide. So my hands are clean. My hands are <laughs> just, just period. So my hands are clean. You've never slid. I've never, I've never slid. I mean, I think, yes. I mean, I'm sorry for Olivia cooking that instance. But if I slid into the DMs with yeah. a famous actor, they too would ignore me. Yeah, you, yeah, you wouldn't be expecting much, would you? No, yeah. I wouldn't. So her confession is almost like, you know, I, I was treated like a normal person on the internet. But, you know, she's like a hot actress yeah Yeah, Yeah. whatever and like you'd think she'd get some you know get some activity she'd get some responses but no okay well you know that makes me feel at least somewhat better about my life and with that i think we'll close close the book on red hot this month thank you jess yeah you're welcome for this month's location scout we are venturing into london looking in particular at the city's coziest and most Dickensian spots, places where you can really snuggle up and venture into the past during this festive period. And uh, to look at that, we're going to chat with writer and editor Tom Howells, and we'll see if we can get Tom on the line now. Hello. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. Tell us where you are in the city. Well, I am in Seven Dials, which uh, for the uninitiated is a kind of, I guess you describe it as a sort of panopticon of, of streets and courts, just kind of north of Covent Garden, which is kind of a, a kind of bustling, bougie shopping area these days. Very kind of cobbled. Uh, so tell us why you're at Seven Dials. What's so sort of Christmassy and cosy about that place? Well, from a kind of Dickensian point of view, a bit of background is that obviously London is is completely kind of synonymous with Dickens, but actually it's quite hard to trace any of the places that he spoke about in in contemporary London because they basically just don't exist anymore. But Seven Dials is somewhere that he actually did write about specifically uh, in his first book, which was called um, Sketches by Boz, which came out in 1836, and it was a kind of like it was a kind of collection of newspaper essays with this fictitious protagonist, this um, the eponymous Boz, and he just kind of traipsed around the city and kind of recorded the the kind of idiosyncrasies and details of the, the, the people he met and the places he saw. And Seven Dials is kind of an interesting one because because now it's like a really genteel kind of zone with really nice restaurants and really like charming little cafes. There's a St. John, there's a Monmouth, there's Neil's Yard Dairy. But back in Dickens's day, it was a real like den of, of kind of poverty and depravity. And it was just a kind of soot-covered hub of mm. kind of crime and like drunken harridans and rough men so everything you'd expect from a good dickens story basically <laughs> exactly now being completely wiped out but yes yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition but it's still got that kind of uh, feel of this sort of like tight-knit mm. warren of courts and streets which um which i think is still sort of evocatively dickensian for a lot of people visiting the city so you can sense the history a little bit yeah, certainly. I think while was... drinking an artisanal coffee and uh... <laughs> exactly while munching on St John donuts. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Excellent. That sounds perfect to me. So uh, you you said that a lot of um, Dickens's London is is kind of sadly lost, but uh, why is that? And also, where can you in the city still experience a little bit of that feeling? Um, why is it lost? I mean, I think there's a famous quote with him describing London as a Victorian kind of lantern, a magic lantern. A Victorian magic lantern is a kind of projector of images. 
And so what I would construe from that is that Dickens kind of saw the city as just being this kind of perpetual supplier of just like evocative scenes and vibes, but not necessarily things that were, you know, related to the actual street names and places in a granular way. Although he does mention, say, the Barbican, for instance, comes up in Oliver Twist and I think Martin Chuzzlewit and, and Little Dorrit. Um, but I think mostly he just kind of took the city as a kind of, yeah, like a vehicle for kind of for atmosphere. I mean, you can still trace certain things, like I say, the Barbican. And then I would say, I mean, the Dickens Museum is obviously a particularly good example, which is which is over in Bloomsbury, which obviously has like a great literary legacy anyway. I think it's just off Grayson Road. I think it's in, on Doughty Street. Um, and it's where he lived for a very brief period of his life. So it feels like kind of a cheat <laughs> that, mm. that they've kind of like brought it back to life as like Dickens' home because he only lived there I think from 1837 to 1839 uh, which was the kind of beginning part of his career but then he did write well I think he finished the Pickwick papers there and he wrote Nicholas Nickleby there and he wrote Oliver Twist so it was kind of like a formative space and then if you visit it's a kind of facsimile reproduction of exactly the house that Dickens would have left when he moved out effectively. I love museums like that where you walk into a property and it's got all that sort of musty, lived-in sense of historical context. Yeah, like a real living history kind of vibe, plus a nice cafe, you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's, all the there's, essentials. There's a theme being established here of like a bit of yeah, history, yeah. a nice coffee. And uh, what what about London from the perspective of somebody who's um, not looking to retrace Dickens' life so closely, but is just looking for a sense of history and, and of that sort of Christmassy closeness and uh, cobblestones and cooked gooses and all of that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> what are we, what are we mean, looking for? I guess it's kind of ubiquitous when you start noticing it. I mean, London, I always feel that London is like a winter city. I think all the things that make it quintessentially sort of English and like, you know, historically authentic, be that the kind of little alleyways in the city and cobbled streets and these kind of wood recessed cozy pubs and even like, you know, Hampstead Heath, which, you know, obviously people love Hampstead Heath in the summer, but there's something particularly like evocative about the kind of, you know, the grey mire when it kind of sets in in autumn and winter. And so it is kind of everywhere when you look at it. And I think I think a lot of places lend themselves far more to to kind of like these later seasons. I guess it's kind of everywhere. I'd say, just off the top of my head, there's places like the Seven Stars Pub off Chancery Lane, which is behind the Royal Courts of Justice, is this like astounding little sort of timeless bolt hole of a lawyer's pub, just kind of with this sort of dusty legal ephemera in the window. There's a cat, um, which used to be called Thomas Paine. They've got, they've kind of gone through quite a lot of cats, but there's always a cat in there wearing a ruff and taking up one of the very few seats that are already in there anyway. <laughs> Hang on, wearing a ruff. Wearing a ruff, yeah. But it's Black like... cat, white ruff. <laughs> like, a, like a frilly collar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, like a frilly collar. A sort of, you know, not a starched one, I guess. You know, <laughs> I'd be fearing an animal cruelty, but, you know, it's you know, it's pretty sizable. And then you have places like, I mean, for a more foodie kind of example, I guess, like upstairs, the French house. So the French house is a pub in Soho, which is like one of these real bastions of old Soho. It's very associated with, the kind of bohemian drinkers of the 60s like Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon and journalists like Geoffrey Barnard but upstairs from that there's always been like a kind of dining room for instance Fergus Henderson from St John who sort of started his career there and it was recently taken over by a really good chef called Neil Borthwick and now it's a kind of very rustic uh, sort of British stroke French dining room but it's just this amazing sort of place out of time spot I think it's just kind of like burgundy walled really like clattery loads of just like hearty stuff on toast and it just really feels like 
because it's so small, like kind of undiscovered, just like charming little gem. Mm. And there's really nothing like on like a cold evening, sitting in the window with a kind of like half a bottle of champagne, some oysters, and then just like, yeah, moving on to a massive sort of like, I don't know, veal chop and loads of other things and toast <laughs> and then a huge cheese board. <laughs> what sort of lifestyle are you enjoying here, Tom? I think, uh, I think an early exit gout inflection. <laughs> So, so uh, take us around Seven Dials a little bit. You, you've talked about Monmouth, which is um, a coffee shop, yes, and St. John, which is a restaurant. Tell us a bit more about these places and any other places you should drop into. Oh, I mean, Seven Dials itself is the kind of, it's seven streets that then kind of um, conflate on this like central roundabout and there's a kind of monument and that's the intersection of the Seven Dials historically. And then off of that, I mean, Neil's Yard is this little court just to the, northeast of that which i'd say is the sort of it becomes a de facto epicenter because it's where st john and um there's a restaurant called the barbary which is an excellent sort of north african extremely hip restaurant it was i believe it was time out's restaurant of the year for about six years which seemed quite lazy editorially but it's very good <laughs> <laughs> um and that's just really i mean it's just genuinely one of the kind of sweetest vibiest places in london and although it does look very historical it's also very kind of like technicolor all the buildings are painted sort of orange and blue and things like that i mean neil street's really excellent as well it's just you know the shopping provisions are very good if if like me you like buying expensive swedish jeans and you know overpriced workwear and records it's particularly excellent <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're, de- you're describing all my interests here <laughs> yeah 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 um and it's just a very you know it's a very sweet place to kind of wander around and like i say get away from the kind of like the masses of, of Covent Garden itself, which I think, you know, has its own great appeal, but is extremely over busy. And it just feels like for something so close to such a touristy area, it just feels like a kind of, yeah, a kind of almost kind of more authentic lived in little bit. Mm. And, and talk about St. John, because you've mentioned that a few times. What is St. John? What, what, does, oh, that, what does that restaurant represent to London? Well, how long have we got? So, I mean, I guess a tiny preamble would be that I think it opened maybe Maybe it was 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. So it was owned by a guy, by a guy called Fergus Henson, who was an architect turned chef. And he opened it as a kind of, it's, it's seen as being the archetypally British restaurant and hugely influential on uh, what's known as nose to tail cuisine, which is effectively eating all parts of the animal. So really awful heavy. And it's just been a hugely influential restaurant all over the world in terms of kind of ethical eating. And it's this, uh, the one that is in Common Garden, the main outpost is well the main original restaurant is in Smithfield near the old meat market and it's this real clattery cantini hugely atmospheric sort of I think maybe it's a former warehouse of some kind and just when you walk in it's just it's like a kind of olfactory brick to the face you can just smell the bakery and all like the cheeses and it's just it's marvelous I think it's seen by London foodies and by people from the international scene as being as being the definitive British restaurant mm. even though there's probably some cause to say that it could almost be more French because I think contemporary British food is technically quite Gallic but um yeah it's just a kind of essential stop on any kind of like you know roving gastronauts sort of London map mm. it's Michelin starred right the uh, original location yeah, it is. It's got, yeah, it's got one Michelin star, but I think it's almost, that's kind of almost become by the by because it's so, it's so not enthralled to like, you know, these kind of Michelin metrics of luxury. It's very stripped back and rustic, just very kind of hearty kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah, it's marvellous. Recommend it to anyone. Great. Well, thank you, Tom. Where's next on your itinerary? What are you, um, what are you going to do next? I think next, I'm going to head up to the British Library to have just a bit of a 
sort of hardcore literary afternoon. And then I think around four or five o'clock, I'm going to make my way to St. Paul's uh, and probably go to Evensong as it's a really kind of um, atmospheric sort of shifting into the festive season yes. thing to go to. And also it's an excellent hack because normally St. Paul's is very expensive to get into. I think maybe it's perhaps it's around 20 pounds. But if you go to Evensong, it's completely free as it's a church service, which sounds extremely cynical, but the music is, you know, spellbinding. So. Well, I feel cosy just talking to you and... Um... <laughs> You know, while you go and enjoy your literary <laughs> afternoon and evening, I might just go and <laughs> I might just go and slip into a pub somewhere, maybe see if I can get half a dozen oysters in your fashion. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Cheers, Johnny. Renee King Sonnen is not your average Texan cowgirl. Having convinced her cattle rancher husband to convert their land to a sanctuary for the animals they used to send to slaughter, she's now a staunch advocate for animal welfare and a committed vegan. The ranch in Wailder, Texas is now the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, a registered non-profit organisation from which Renee extols the virtues of a meat-free society. Here's Renee with more on the challenges of spreading the plant-based word in the home of barbecue. Renee King Sonnen. I'm the founder and director of Rowdy Girl Sanctuary and the Rancher Advocacy Program. We are the first documented beef cattle ranch vegan conversion in history. Rowdy Girl Sanctuary began because I had an awakening on a Texas cattle ranch. My husband's, he's a multi-generational cattle rancher from Texas, and his grandfather and great-grandfather. My husband is a historian, and so he still has all of the old brands and the spurs that his great-grandpa wore because he was very proud of his heritage. And I was always the kind of the rhinestone cowgirl, you know, always had the collection of leather boots, went to the rodeo, you know, a lot of leather clothes and was not a vegan at all. I think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that I was and still am a very spiritual person. And so I began to see the animals on the cattle ranch like I see my own pets. And I didn't plan on that happening. I didn't really want to participate in the cattle ranching business until Tommy came home one day and said there was a baby calf up the road. Well, there was two of them actually that needed a mama. They were very, very young and I don't know what happened to their mama. I never knew, but I bought them and I bought them both for $300 a piece. And one of them was Rowdy Girl and Rowdy Girl is the reason there's Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. And so I began to bottle feed Rowdy Girl. And when I was bottle feeding Rowdy Girl, she was feeding me a spiritual connection to all the other bovine in the pastures. That connection opened me up to experience an awakening unlike anything I was prepared for. It took five years for me to have this awakening. I would see all their nuances. I could tell them individually. And I began to name them and it became a real problem. I kept trying to 
push the needle with my husband to understand why we didn't slaughter our own animals, why we bought meat from the store. And, you know, it was a, it was a big, big hurdle. I told my husband that if he took those cows up the road one more time, I was going to buy them all back and I was going to bring them home. I began to conspire and create a way to buy my husband's cows from him. I had started a secret diary on Facebook called Vegan Journal of a Cattle Rancher's Wife. And I began to raise thousands of dollars to buy his cows. And one day I said to him out in the pasture, because he was mad at me. You know, he was fixing to send all the cows to the slaughterhouse. I said, if you're going to sell them all, why don't you sell them to me? And he was like, sell them to you? Are you crazy? And I pretty much said, yep, I am crazy. I am no longer in the mindset of eating animals, being a cattle rancher. These animals to me are like my family. And he said, Renee, you get out of my blankety blank business. And I said, it's no longer a business. And that's what started Rowdy Girl. I raised $36,000 in less than four months and bought his cows. As far as my community and how they responded to what I was trying to do on my Facebook page, they didn't even know it. Nobody around me knew anything. Everybody that was responding was people that I didn't even know. My community didn't know. I, I, I wasn't that stupid. I would never tell anybody around me that I was doing this, they'd have thought I, well, they would have really thought I was crazy. Uh, and I didn't want to tell anybody. And, you know, I wanted it to already be a done deal before they found out so they could just go, you did what? And that's what happened. Once I bought them and Rowdy Girl became a, a 501c3 nonprofit, February 20th, 2015. So I went vegan October of 2014. Uh, when it was still the Son and Ranch, and in February of the following year, it was Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. And so nobody in my community had any time to even know what the heck happened. You know, one minute we were cattle ranchers, and I was going to the Cattlemen's Association dinners, and the next minute I'm vegan, and my husband is, uh, you know, pissed off at me, and his partner thinks, you know, he's crazy and all that. So my advice to anybody wanting to take small steps is take big ones. Stop looking at it as a small change. It needs to be a big change. You know, we can't just do meatless on Monday and kill the planet six days a week and all the animals. Part of the problem, I think, is people keep wanting to take baby steps when our planet is on fire. I am convinced that we don't have much time on our, on our planet. You know, what's happened as a result of it is the Rancher Advocacy Program. You know, we're helping transition cattle ranchers and chicken farmers. And my husband is now vegan. He followed suit right after me. So, you know, the impossible happened. As far as what's going on in the future for our organization, the Rancher Advocacy Program is my primary programming. We've had four RAP summits. The main question we ask at all those summits is what can animal farmers do on their land to thrive without using animals? And so my main agenda, you know, I'm not very bashful about it. I want to end the suffering of animals and animal agriculture is a system of violent suffering. And so I don't want to see animals hurt by animal agriculture. 
And we're uh, right now transitioning a cattle ranch or chicken farm in Arkansas to a state-of-the-art exotic oyster mushroom facility right now. We'll be growing other mushrooms too, but there's four 20,000 square foot poultry barns there. And we've got one of those barns completely cleaned out, retrofitted with a big walk-in freezer. And each one of those big poultry barns will be 18 grow rooms. We'll be producing about 2,700 pounds a week by the end of November. And we're going to be able to find a home for all those exotic mushrooms because we're also working in tandem with plant-based food companies. So the future is exploding. Mushrooming. You can find out more about Renee and her ranch at rowdygirlsanctuary.org. It's time for What's On, that bit of the podcast, where we find out what we should be watching in the worlds of film and TV. And we're joined for this by guest critic Simran Hans. Hello, Simran. Hello. Nice to be here. How are you? Are you feeling festive? I'm feeling ready for Christmas. Feeling cosy? Very cosy. Okay, good. Well, let's let's channel that coziness into some televisual mediums. So let's be, let's begin with uh, film, actually. What are you suggesting that we watch? Well, I think, you know, around Christmas time, you want to be catching up with everything that you've missed at the cinema. Yeah. You've been too busy, doing all your shopping, dealing with work parties. Who is going to the movies at this time? Um, and I I really would suggest catching up with the latest film from Jordan Peele, Nope. This is the third film from him. He directed Get Out. He directed a film called Us. And I think it's true that people think of him as like the master of elevated horror, of uh, a director who deals with social issues using genre. So it stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Lane as OJ and Emerald, a brother and sister who live on a ranch and train horses for movies. And basically, when they spot a UFO, Emerald decides she wants to get a photo of it so she can sell it to the media and get rich. As, you know, you would. Exactly. She's a reasonable person with yes, reasonable goals. Yes, that's what goals. I'd do. Yeah, I wouldn't be like, meet aliens. I'd be like, get rich. And naturally, the aliens do not like this and everything kind of uh, unravels for them and it becomes very kind of stakesy and, and kind of like a thriller. Mm. And so, you know, what's interesting about this movie, the sort of social issues that are being explored through this metaphor, is really like the horror of surveillance and of being watched and how in our culture, we're obsessed with spectacle. We can't look away. Um, and that really kind of shapes our culture. One of the things that Jordan Peele is really interested in is the power of the image and who gets to create it and who gets to be sort of part of the history uh, of cinema. And this is kind of, we kind of see this a little bit in the film because you have these two characters who are connected to Hollywood because their animals on their ranch are in movies. Mm. Um, but at the kind of the beginning of the film, Kiki Lane's character, she tells the story of her own personal history and of the family's personal history. And it turns out that these two characters are descended from a black jockey who was in one of the earliest ever moving images. Um, and, and she makes the point that 
uh, in cinema history, we remember the name of the horse, we remember the name of the filmmaker, but we don't remember the name of the jockey. And that's a way that, you know, black history is written out of cinema. And so Jordan Peele making this film about these two African-American siblings who are kind of infiltrating the Western is his kind of nod to how they haven't been included in cinema history. Okay, great. So it is a sci-fi Western about cultural identity through the lens of cinema, something, something like that. It's bringing, to get, it's, bringing, it's bringing together a lot of stuff, basically. I'd say that's close. Yeah, I definitely think it's like a sort of a riff on on the genres of the sci-fi, the Western, and, and really thinking about who gets to make images and what images we should be sort of looking at and what images we should look away from. I'm, I'm absolutely very interested in this now. This sounds fascinating. Uh, let's move on. What else have you got for us? So I grew up watching the CBBC breakfast show Smile, which was presented by Fern Cotton and a certain Reggie Yates. Yeah, I know Reggie Yates from exactly <laughs> that context as well. I feel I'm showing my age a little bit here, but um, he has made his first feature film and it's a movie called Pirates. And it's basically... As director. As a director and a writer. He doesn't right. star in it. Yeah. Um, and... It's basically a sort of goofy coming of age story set in London on New Year's Eve in 1999. Um, and it revolves around three lads trying to get tickets for a sold out garage rave. Um, so one of the characters played by Jordan Peters can kiss his crush at the stroke of midnight. Mm. So, you know, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's basically super bad set in North London. Excellent. Will they get to the party? Will he get the girl? Will their friendship survive? Yeah. And they've got a little yellow car that they call the custard cream. And um, it's just really sweet and really funny. Do, do you feel like this is a film for Brits? Do you think that an American audience would get it in the same way? I think maybe uh, if you didn't grow up with that culture and with that music, then maybe it wouldn't hit the same kind of emotional spot for you. But mm. um I still think there's plenty to enjoy, even as a kind of a tourist of North London in the 90s. Mm. Okay, great. I feel good for Reggie Yates because I also know him as being like a kids TV presenter. And I love it when, pe when people like that sort of drift out of your cultural consciousness and then they arrive back and they're like real professional people doing really cool things. So well done to Reggie Yates. Yeah, shout out to Reggie Yates. <laughs> uh, okay, what's your final film pick for us? So I think for my final pick, I'm going to take us in a, a darker direction. Please with, do. With an independent film called True Things. It's another British film directed and written by Harry Whitliffe. Um, she's a really interesting filmmaker. And this film is about a toxic relationship between two characters played by Ruth Wilson and Tom Burke. So Kate is a, a kind of bored office worker in her 30s who ends up being seduced by uh, an ex-offender who comes in. She works in the benefits office and he's a claimant. And uh, they they meet in this very innocuous way, but there's something about him. He's dangerous, he's sexy, and uh, they end up having this quite tempestuous affair. And when we meet Kate, she's already kind of slightly chaotic by most people's standards. Um, she's turning up to work late, there's no food in her fridge, she's 30-something and single. Her parents think she's sort of difficult and that's why she can't get a man. And we're sort of set up to see how this bad choice in the relationship 
is kind of following a pattern of self-sabotage that, mm. you know, she's prone to as a character. But also they have really hot chemistry in the yeah. film. And uh, Tom Burke, I don't know if you've seen him in in much. He's a British actor who I know from his role in Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. He plays the sort of bad boyfriend in that. And there's something very menacing and seductive about him. And, you know, you can really kind of see why she's drawn to him. He's got a lot of presence. Mm. But what I like about this movie is the way the director kind of aligns with Kate's perspective, even though we sort of, set her up as somebody who you know doesn't really have a clue what's going on as we move through the film you kind of come around to her way of thinking even if you don't fully endorse it even if you can recognize that she's sort of like I said making bad choices you get her point of view and her subjectivity and you know I feel like it's a subtle invitation to question the normal life that you know she's rejecting for something that makes her feel more alive wow all right, that sounds great. And maybe sort of play slightly with the trope of the messy millennial woman, which I feel like you see a lot in TV now. Yeah. Like women in their 30s who are like, oh, I just need to get my life together, you know, and it's, it's usually treated kind of comedically. Exactly. And it asks the question, what would it look like if she did get her life together and be in a relationship? Mm. Um, and actually that wasn't the answer. That didn't make her life better. Great. Well, I love subversive films with lots of sex in them, so... Oh, well, then it's one for you. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'll put that on the list. All right, wonderful. I think we we are done with film, so let's move on to TV. Well, well, going from one messy millennial woman to another, I really want to recommend a show called Am I Being Unreasonable? Are you? I don't know. Am I? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> You'll ask me again at the end of the show. Okay. It's a six-part comedy drama written by and starring Daisy May Cooper. Yeah, love her. Um, I actually hadn't seen This Country, which is what she's sort of known for. Um, it's a BAFTA-winning sitcom that she wrote and starred in with her brother, Charlie, about two cousins who live in the Cotswolds. They both grew up there. It was kind of like a mockumentary-style parody sort of thing and this is has a more dramatic shape it's it's more of a traditional comedy drama um but it's also set in that part of the world and it's a really kind of loving skewering of a particular kind of middle-class village life so cooper plays nick and uh, she's what i would describe as a textbook hun mm. if that means anything to you i think in the in the british context that does doesn't it like uh what how would you describe that like quite a kind of girly girl yeah, I would, I would describe a hun as uh, the kind of woman who is turning up to the school fete in a gilet with a bottle of white wine. <laughs> um, she's one of the girlies. And um, yeah, this character, Nick, she's posting on a kind of like Mumsnet style forum about how her husband gives her the ick. You know, yeah. she's not in a good place. And eat the ick, again, for our American listeners. Is... Yes, sorry, I'm using all these British no, colloquialisms. The, but these are the best British colloquialisms. So the ick is when you sort of go off your partner sexually. Exactly. The ick is when somebody who you're involved with or who you like in a romantic context just kind of makes you feel a bit gross. Mm. You just suddenly turn on them. And, you know, that's how she feels about her own husband. So you kind of see that she's not in the best state of mind. Um, she's also secretly grieving the death of a man that she was having an affair with. Right. And her only friend, 
pretty much is her son, Ollie. But then she hits it off with a new mum at school, uh, a woman called Jen, who's played by the show's co-writer, Celine Hisley, who was also in this country. And soon enough, they're hanging out, they're listening to Atomic Kitten, they're doing shots, you know, classic Hun behavior. Mm -hmm. But Jen's got a secret. And so the show is kind of a mystery that spends these six episodes trying to understand who exactly this woman is and why she's inserted herself into Nick's life. While at the same time, we're sort of learning more and more about this grief that she's processing and the context of it. Mm, Wonderful. Okay, that's definitely on the list. And uh, let's finish off then. What's your last TV suggestion? So last but absolutely not least, uh, if you binge watch one thing on this flight, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend digging into the box set of the six-part BBC drama Sherwood, uh, which is not really to do with Robin Hood, although there is a little bit of Robin Hood going mm-hmm. on there. You know, There's hints of it, yeah. Sherwood Forest, yeah. crossbows and arrows, uh-huh. a little bit of, um, let's say, socialist do-goodery. Yes. <laughs> so it's a really intense, absorbing thriller about a murder whose investigation basically opens up wounds in an ex-mining community in Nottingham. And it's quite an interesting political context and backdrop that you sort of need to know a little bit about to really kind of understand what the show is driving about. And I'll explain it briefly, so kind of stick with me. So in 1984, there was a miners' strike in Nottingham and different unions had different attitudes towards the strike. So the NUM was on the picket line and the DUM crossed it and continued to go to work. Right. And so because there was all of this tension in this town, they couldn't control it with the local police force. And so the Met Police were brought in from London to kind of help with the violence. And in the end, they ended up actually exacerbating it and making it worse. The divisions deepened over these kind of fundamental tensions between collective solidarity, you know, being on the picket and having the individual choice to go to work feed your family Mm. an obvious point of comparison you know in our kind of contemporary world is brexit right Mm. two kind of polarized points of view two warring sides deepening divisions you can see why the writer james graham decided to make this story uh, about something that happened in the 80s now there are definite parallels is it set in the 80s it's set now so the show is set in present day, mm. um, but it kind of deals with this historical conflict. Right. Uh, and I, I learned a lot from watching the show. Um, and so sort of what happens, this, the premise of it is that uh, a guy called Gary Jackson, who's a proud member of the NUM, is murdered by a crossbow. And the police end up calling in a guy called D.I. Kevin Salisbury, who's a Met police officer who had actually been deployed in Nottingham back in 1984. And he had a part to play in, let's say, a night of violence that Mm -hmm. happened back then, uh, resulted in a fatality. And so there's all sorts of ghosts that are following him as he's back in this uh, part of town that he hasn't been in for however many years. And it's not so much a kind of like whodunit traditional true crime thriller. It's more of a why done it. You know, we learn who the killer is very quickly, but there are other kind of mysteries and connections between the characters that very slowly and very satisfyingly reveal themselves over the, the sort of six episodes. It's about politics and lies and these kind of like brittle family feuds. And 
I guess like the complex reasons why people don't always do the right thing. And, and the cast is brilliant. There's Adil Akhtar as the emotionally unstable train driver, uh, the great Leslie Manville, who you might have seen in Phantom Thread, uh, as Gary's straight-talking wife. Lorraine Asheville is amazing as the matriarch of the drug-dealing Sparrow family. And uh, David Morrissey from The Walking Dead is a, is a sort of gentle policeman with lots of historic regrets. Mm. It's a really gripping binge watch. I'm absolutely sold. Thank you for that, Simman. That was such a brilliant run-through. And I feel like you have been probing at the surface of British life a little bit with these picks, you know, and trying to sort of get through to the latent tensions underneath the civilised surface. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can you can do it in comedy, you can do it in drama, but I'd recommend all of these for an insight into contemporary British life. Well, it's good that I have no secrets. There's nothing below the civilised surface of my existence. Everything about my life is uh, absolutely fine and dandy. Well, as long as it's civilised. It is. It's so civilised. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Hi, <laughs> right, And that's it for the December edition of the River Magazine podcast. There's nothing like examining a few human foibles to get us into the festive spirit, and I hope you too are feeling full of seasonal cheer as you jet off, either to be with your family or get as far away from them as you can. I've been Johnny Ensel, and this podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. See you next month.